Hello there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined tonight by Craig. I said, lady, step inside my Hyundai. And Scott. Hello. He's a normal person. <laughs> Not that that's a criticism. Because yeah, if thanks, man. Normal, it'd be very boring. Or indeed accurate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, uh, for this episode, we're going to carry on with a look at the works of the legendary Hong Kong filmmaker Wong Kar Wai. I think it's fair to say we're... It's a fairly mixed bag the last time, but I don't think much really blew us away in terms of quality. I would say, I think I make a comment uh, during one of my uh, review notes, uh, Drew, that we were, I think, somewhat neutral, maybe tending towards disappointed. I would say that was that fairly well summed up. Again, for me, I, there weren't any I didn't like, but there weren't any I actually liked either. So, oh. <laughs> um, And it's got me with a couple more. But certainly there was interest there and maybe see the beginnings of a style emerging but we're looking in this episode from Happy Together onwards which is where he really made his name by winning uh, being nominated for the Palme d'Or winning the Best Director 1997 Cannes Film Festival and we're going to move on from there and surprisingly for such a legendary filmmaker he's only made 10 films since the mid 80s Uh, so we're doing the other 5 tonight and we're well, let's begin with Happy Together. Yes, uh, in which we move over to Argentina in this 1997 effort as Leslie Chung's Ho Po Wing and Tony Leung's uh, Lai Yufei are introduced to us on an ill-fated road trip to a scenic waterfall aborted when an argument sees Po Wing storm off and initiate the latest in what's clearly a series of breakups between the two. We later rejoin Fai, working as a promoter come bouncer at a Buenos Aires nightclub, with him taking up the by now familiar voiceover duties of narrating his life, where he's trying to save some money to return to the Hong Kong that he misses, when life throws a spanner in the works when Po Wing shows up with a new bloke, although it seems at this instance he's a paying client. A blow-by-blow recap of the twists and turns of their relationship as they are again drawn to each other through some desperate events probably won't do a great deal of justice to them, but must be said that after the last episode's surfeit of relationships that stretch credulity, we finally have one here that I can finally believe in and invest some emotion in. Not a healthy relationship, obviously, on either party's end, but one that feels altogether human as these two come together again and inevitably, it seems, fall apart again. The other strand woven into this comes from a work colleague of Fai's, Zhang Chen's Chang, another Taiwanese youngster touring about, stopping off to make some money before travelling to the ends of the earth, or at least the lighthouse at the end of the world. He and Fai become friends, Chang's only friend in Argentina, he says, and it seems like there may be more than just friendship on the cards. However, it's not the case, Chang remaining a solitary figure on the rest of his travels, leaving us wondering if perhaps the title of this film is purely ironic. Uh, if you didn't catch our last podcast, the general consensus, I think, would be that Y has style to spare his films, although plot and character were, in fact, spared almost entirely. <laughs> As a relationship study, I suppose you could argue that this still isn't going in hard on the plot elements, but as mentioned earlier, it's finally delivered a bunch of characters that I'm invested in, a final component for proper enjoyment of his films, when coupled with the by now expected fine performances from Leslie Chung and Tony Leung. Thankfully, the style remains too, with another well-shot film that contrasts the city's charms alongside the character's less glamorous lodgings and later workplaces. Finally, it's all come together to produce something that I can recommend without having to put any caveats in. As for wider meaning, I've heard arguments on both sides as to this 
film's presentation of the gay relationship, drawing as it does little to no attention to the leads actually being gay. Is this entirely normalising uh, the relationship in society, as ideally it should be, or minimising the lived experiences of the gay community, for whom such normalisation is far from guaranteed, both sadly now and at the time of release? I'm not best placed to judge, but I recommend that you all watch it and make your own minds up. Yes, quite enjoyed this one. Yeah, I almost entirely agree with you, Scott. I I did go into this a little bit trepidatious because of our experience the last yes. time. I need something with a bit more substance, you know, just um doesn't have to be narrative, but I don't want just more ridiculously unhealthy relationships or just have a slightly unhealthy relationship here. <laughs> That's progress. Yeah, and people I cared about. Yeah, I actually don't have a lot to add to what you said. I just I really enjoyed the mood of it. Mm. Uh, I think silly out of these 10 films, I think there's one with a, what you might term a happy ending. So, you know, <laughs> uh, it's a, they're a bit of a downer in that regard. Um, although I do appreciate that the way the relationship just sort of drifts apart here feels realistic. Mm-hmm. Not with any big you know, drama bomb or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I feel that it's something, as a film, I could actually get quite a lot more out of with another review, like, Get so dig deeper into what the black and white portions mean compared to the colour ones. And I had a few guesses, but hmm. I think with knowledge of what happens later, to go back and watch it again might get yeah. more of it. And that's the thing. Whereas I was happy enough to have seen all the films in the last podcast, I don't think there were many, apart from maybe Chunking Express, I'd fancy seen again. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one immediately is, oh, yeah, I'd give that another go in a few years, mm. which is a nice thing to go on. As to your point about the the gay relationship with Scott. Again, I also like yourself, not best place to comment, but I am thinking of things like Brokeback Mountain, which at the time, you know, it's so, well, in some circles, controversial, unfortunately, but it made such a big deal of it being this gay story. It's, it wasn't. It was just basically, it was a romantic drama that happened to be about two men rather than them being gay. I mean, there was, there was part of it with, with the people around them and the way they acted, but I feel this is a bit more along those lines, but I think the question might be whether there isn't enough of the films that explore the gay part of it. Mm, um, yeah. The difficulties, the same points, like, let's just treat it like a relationship, mm. which is the way it should be, but, but yes, again, not best place to, to talk about it, but it's... Uh, yeah, really good film. I really enjoyed my time with it. Another part that uh, didn't occur to me until I read up a bit afterwards, but the the timing of this is, of course, very close to the handover of Hong Kong back to China from Britain, or at least the administrative relationship. And you can view this as a, an extended allegory for that uh, relationship between uh, Britain, Hong Kong, and China as well. So yes. that's another interesting aspect to, that I'd be interested to kind of review with that mm. in mind as well. I will I will take that into my first viewing because I did not have time to watch this, but I feel confident saying I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> well then, Craig, would you be in the mood for telling us whether you would love film. <laughs> I'm in the mood for something Drew <laughs> I'm in the mood yeah. for love <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> um, okay Hong Kong 1962 Mrs Chan Maggie Chung a secretary and Mr Chow Tony Leung a journalist are two people who along with their respective spouses both begin to rent adjoining apartments on the same day To the casual observer, both appear to be happily married. However, as viewers, we soon become aware that something is off. Mrs Chan's husband seemingly spends most of his time away on business trips, while the equally nebulous Mrs Chow is frequently likewise away with work or tending to distant ill relatives. 
Soon it begins to dawn on our two leads that their spouses are having an affair. But in the aftermath of this revelation, the pair choose to keep their knowledge on the lowdown and form a bond of friendship that becomes increasingly romantic throughout the course of the movie. Vowing never to be like their partners, the pair agree that they must remain faithful in order to uphold both the outward appearance of their respective relationships, but also their own dignity. Eventually, Chow confesses to Chan that his feelings for her have gone way beyond those the pair promised he would allow, and to spare them any further torment, he moves to Shanghai in pursuit of a job opportunity. Now, as far as plot is concerned, what with this being a Wong Kar Wai joint, that's almost your lot. Mm. Not quite, but almost. If you listened to our last podcast on the topic, you'll remember we had variable results, um, and in particular I felt let down by the reputation of Days of Being Wild. In the Mood for Love shares a great deal with that movie, indeed the pair are part of an unofficial trilogy of sorts along with 2046, but whereas that movie felt about as flyaway as it gets, here, at arguably the apex of his career, Wong manages a wonderful feat in marrying that subtlety of unobtrusive plot with depth of character, genuine emotional resonance, and an atmosphere bordering on the tangible. Much of the movie's success is due to Chung and Leung as a nascent couple, their subtle chemistry occasionally simmering as they orbit each other in a way that's both believable and satisfying. It would have been easy to play this one for over-the-top melodrama, but it is at all times reserved and all the more heartbreaking for it. Both Chow and Chan are likeable, empathetic characters in a way that is thrown into stark relief by both the behaviour of their spouses, almost entirely absent from screen, only occasionally glimpsed from behind or heard from across a hallway, and also their dignity, of which Wong affords them plenty. Speaking of dignity, I think it's interesting to observe how much of it Wong affords the female leads of his movies, in stark contrast to much of Western cinema's output for the same period. Maggie Chung could easily have phoned in this performance on looks alone had she so desired, because believe me when I say, she is an absolute vision in every frame of this movie, but her calm resolve as Mrs Chan is at least equally as beautiful to behold, and we are in no doubt that she is fully in charge of her own destiny throughout. Likewise, this might be my favourite performance from Tony Leung, whose similar resolve and eventual epiphany that he no longer holds the affair against his wife, as he understands how easy it is to fall in love, is just as quietly heartbreaking. Those two central performances ought really to be enough, but in this instance, miraculously, we are spoiled by, frankly, world-class cinematography, led by frequent collaborator Christopher Doyle, beautiful costume designed by William Chang, and totally on-point art direction courtesy of Lim Chung Man. And anyone who's listened to our podcast for any length of time know that I never call out those departments by name. Um, I don't know if I've settled on how to articulate my thoughts about the cinematography in particular, but if Chris Doyle had laid the camera down at the end of shooting announced his destiny in this life had been fulfilled and then disappeared in a puff of smoke, I doubt anyone could have acted surprised. (laughs) That all of this comes together in a single package is frankly remarkable, enough so that I might now be forced to go back and rewatch Days of Being Wild to ensure I haven't made a terrible mistake. I don't think I did, but that's okay. Only having In the Mood for Love is enough for me. It actually made me reassess my feelings towards 2046, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Suffice to say, outside of that movie, this is the first time I feel Wong's reputation has been fully realised for me, and it's really great stuff. Yeah, you said at the end there, Craig, almost exactly what I was going to make my first point to say is that uh, this, as we mentioned in the last podcast, was the film that was the reason why we did this episode at all. Mm-hmm. It's 20 years now since it premiered at Cannes. Mm-hmm. And and we were supposed to have a 4K remaster on tour as we speak, Drew. Yeah, and watching this and like, ah, right, now I get it. Mm-hmm. Properly get it. Because um, it's weird. I'm, I was absolutely convinced that I'd seen several Wong Kar Wai films 
up till we're doing this podcast. You know, mm. Somehow managed to see one and knew enough about a few others that seemed to have like, decided I'd seen them. You and me you and me both, and I was adamant I had seen this movie. Yeah. And now I'm wondering what the movie was that I had actually seen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know at one point when we were putting this list together, I kept on sticking Lost Caution because I was convinced Lost Caution was a Wong Kar Wai film. No, but it's not, it's Ang Lee. Um, uh, that so, might make sense, you know. I've maybe done something like that. Um, that's also Tony Leung, I think. I remember so well since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was already back on board with Happy Together. I thoroughly enjoyed that. But I got, then I watched all these in release order. And I got to In the Mood for Love, realised, oh, I haven't seen this then. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but also, right, yes, get this now. This is uh-huh. excellent. Uh-huh. I really, really like this. I see why people were talking about this film a lot 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just beautiful. And heartbreaking, and actually, that's again, I mentioned it a few moments before in the last film. But the heartbreaking thing is kind of getting to me because, like, mm. just once, well, there, there was one happy ending, as I said, but you know, they, they don't want to cheat on their spouses because, like, they say, um, that'll make them uh, us just as bad as them. It's okay, but you get to the point where you clearly love each other. Is the moral high ground? really worth your misery mm. <laughs> at that point um, after the cheating's already been done by the other half of your um, partnership so I don't know it's just I don't know kind of frustrating in the end because it's perhaps stronger in narrative than almost anything else he's done mm-hmm. and it's at that point because it's you just like well, just just I want a slightly more satisfying ending because you've done misery already. <laughs> I know, and it's the point at which she goes she goes to Shanghai and she phones him at his work from his hotel room, <laughs> and then when he gets back, she's gone. I just wanted to bury my head in a pillow and cry for him. I just oh my days. And then after that, obviously there is a scene that suggests that something actually might have happened ultimately between the two of them, subtly, but. I understand that that is the accepted version of events uh, if you read between the lines and it's like, all oh, right, okay, so yeah, they did consummate things eventually but it's that uh, it, finishing on that lingering note of what might have been is just like oh, it's, it's satisfying in a way because I don't we always talk about how we don't we don't like things to be necessarily tied up neatly and leaving things open-ended or all things not being resolved but in this occasion I just wanted the two of them to be happy together. <laughs> yeah, exactly Yeah, because it wasn't like it was a toxic relationship um, it wasn't like they were going to make each other miserable or anything they yeah. behaved um, honourably to themselves and their spouses they had been decent people you know they just and they were actually they were both suffering the same hurt mm-hmm. it's like and they should have ended up together and didn't and it's like ah mm-hmm. <laughs> this one time why are you so miserable Wong Kar Wai why <laughs> it's kind of the way it, I accept it's the way it has to be and I think that resolution will keep me coming back to this movie because I, I think that honestly, if it had all been resolved in a nice happy ending, I don't know that I would necessarily feel the need back, uh, feel the need to come back and revisit it. But I am certainly going to do that now because this film has immediately gone in like way up my list of movies in general, and I just I'm desperate to I'm desperate for a chance to rewatch this, uh, especially. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because my TV didn't want to uh, play back subtitles for some reason, and I ended up sitting watching this in my Mac, and it's and and it's a nice iMac. It's got a really nice screen, but it's still only like a twenty-one and a half inch screen or something, and it, it still wasn't doing the cinematography justice. And I'm sorry, but the cinematography in this film 
I got to the end of this film and I thought to myself, oh, is that it? Not because I was disappointed in anything, but because I can't remember the last time I came across a film where, where I reached the end and I could honestly say there's not a single wasted shot in that film because literally there's not a shot in this film that isn't either... Uh, you know, plot related, driving things forward, or at least just if it's there, just for the sake of being there, aesthetically stunning. Yeah. <laughs> so, I just got yeah, I mean, I, my mind was blown just by the cinematography. I just I have no idea. I don't even think this. I don't think they didn't win. They might have won at cinematography. I think they won. I think Christopher Doyle won technical prize at Cannes for the cinematography. He and his sort of co cinematographer on this. Um, yeah, they won the technical grand prize at Cannes for this. Yeah, the fact that I don't think they won any cinematography prizes necessarily or like major ones outside of that is just, I need to go back and watch every movie that was nominated in 2000 now because I want to know what film looked better than this. I know. He won uh, the National Society of Film Critics in the US, the New York Film Critics Circle, Asia Pacific Film Festival. It didn't even, it didn't even win at the Hong Kong Film Festival though. That's yeah. nuts. I think the I think uh, both the leads won best uh, actor, and he may uh, Wong Kar Wai may have won best director or something. But I don't think they won for cinematography. That no, is nuts. Nominated. Yeah, that is nuts. Absolute nuts. I want a word with whoever made that decision. <laughs> well, can we just not because I think we established a long time ago all award shows are meaningless because oh. they're always wrong, especially in retrospect. Yes. Um, but that's what I. So whereas. Dances with wolves. <laughs> Shush. Tatonka. Shush. Yeah, so whereas I think aesthetically uh, I was drawn into... Uh, I, well, I don't want to talk about 2046 yet because you're going to talk about that at length, Drew. But I, I was immediately aesthetically drawn into that film and that's where my uh, love of that film grew from initially. Whereas this time round, and especially off the back of my disappointment with uh, Days of Being Wild, the first thing... well. Technically, first thing that drew me in was was this film visually because I think even the second shot of this film, which is uh, Maggie Chung looking out of a window, I was just like, "Oh my god!" I was immediately drawn in by the characterization in this film that I was not in a in uh, Days of Being Wild, and it really caught me off guard because I went into this set of films expecting to be just as disappointed. Um, this film had characterization, Craig, which was the oh. big difference. <laughs> well, it's not that Days of Being Wild lacked characterization. It's just that I think Leslie Chung's character in that film wasn't necessarily all that empathetic, um, and I think it was a pretty, really pretty steep buy-in. It had a couple of character traits. He didn't have a character, yeah, and none of those traits was um, appealing at all. Yeah, as a get. And it's not that that's you know, it's not that that's something you can't have in a movie. But just when I look at the praise heaped on that film, I found it. I felt really disconnected from that, mm-hmm. and so I was expecting to be just as disconnected from the uh, you know the various assessments of this. But right from the off, I was that was me. I was in, and yeah, I'm absolutely heartbroken to think that we're supposed to be sitting looking at a 4K restoration of this right now. But I, you know, we'll we'll get there eventually and there's there's a reason why we can't but yeah that's that's really something to look forward to man in fact in liverpool are going to show that then the same way that they because i believe it was i believe it's been supervised by one car y and criterion the same way that the barry linden uh restoration was hmm. uh, so in fact in liverpool are, are showing this i'll be i'll be buying three tickets so i can have a spare seat either side thank you very much <laughs> You know, one full of sweets and the other with just a stack of pillows to cry into or something. 
Yeah, um, I, I've not been saying much because I've just been not long, along in agreement. Uh, yeah, it's really, really, really good. Um, if Happy Together can have solved the character part of the why uh, Wong's character conundrum, then this sort of ties it all back in with that glorious period detail and the mm. just beautiful cinematography and all that, and it just looks absolutely fantastic. It really ties the film together. So yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. wonderful, wonderful yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's one of those. It's a I'm not going to say overused, um, because it's very often actually an appropriate word. It doesn't. It's not a word like crisis, which has lost its meaning by overuse. But it's one of those words where you just look at it, and the word sumptuous mm-hmm. bobbling to the top of your mind. Yeah. yeah, even in a sort of relatively dilapidated apartment, like when when they're in the kitchen and stuff. You know, the units are all falling apart and everything. But there's, you know, there's there's Maggie Chung looking absolutely immaculate. I don't. Oh my days! I could just spend the whole film. Honestly, I could spend the whole film just looking at Maggie Chung. She looks amazing. She looks amazing. The costume design, her outfits are all identical, um, but they differ in pattern and color. And uh, I just think she, she just every frame she's in, she just moves through like some ethereal <laughs> goddess. It's a, it's amazing. And then you get to like the set design and stuff, and the the set dressing and the decoration and the lighting and sort of like the period, even you know the 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 diner that they meet in to have dinner dates and stuff even like the the choice of crockery there the the cups and the plates and stuff i'm fascinated by (laughs) they've all got this luminous quality about them it's just amazing i've never wanted i've never felt or at least it's been a long time since i felt so immediately at home in the environment that a movie presents and i don't remember the last time that something so essentially sort of run down and drab looked so appealing if that makes sense you know, because they're not living a high life. They're not living in a multi-million dollar apartment. They're they're living in like really cheap rented accommodation. But somehow it still feels really appealing. And it's not just the dressing; it's also like the characters as well. I'm like, yeah, I would like to spend time with these people. So, <laughs> for balance, my only knock on the film is you know the very end when mm-hmm. uh, Tony Lynn goes to Anchor Wat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's just because they wanted to go to Anchor Wat? Because it doesn't seem to have any particular relevance. Anchor Wat in particular. Uh, <laughs> see, there's. I actually meant to go. I was thinking anchor on Chris Thomas, like everything just looked beautiful, even if it didn't yeah. actually serve the story. And I did like that looked striking. I was wondering why anchor because it, it didn't come up in the rest of the film. Um, yeah. So why that? I don't know. But what I did mean to go back was was to check because twenty forty six begins with something that is mentioned in in the mid for love, which oh, I think it's in the mid for love. It's maybe actually one of the other films now. I think about it, but. One of the characters tells another character about the story of um, how do you keep a secret. I think it's in the mid full of, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and you speak oh, yeah. into a tree. Yeah, 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 that's this. Yeah, and because twenty forty six begins with that again, mm-hmm. I was actually wondering did he because you sort of see him leaning against a wall then or what? But I wasn't paying sufficient enough attention. To like, actually, it's, it's like a hole in that wall. Where it's it's a, a secret that's or that's what he's doing. But it's a bullet hole. Yeah. What's not a tree. Yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bullet. It's, it's, a, it's a bullet hole, isn't it? I think from uh, yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Yes, I don't know why Angkor because Singapore is the other place that they go, and Days of Being Wild had some Filipino characters or Chinese Filipinos, but there's not really anything to do with Cambodia in in the middle of love. So why they went to Angkor Wat? Yeah, it's, it's a bit odd. Yeah, I don't know if this is as like some kind of deeper symbolic meaning, or if it means that part of the production cost was paid for by the Cambodian Tourist Board. I don't know. One of the two. <laughs> That's also possible. It's quite possible. Thanking all of the people at Angkor Wat, but yeah. you would do that anyway if you'd yeah. gone. But uh, listen for the hour and thirty-five that precedes it. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. So will we move on then? Yeah, regretfully, I think we should. I'd quite happily stayed in this moment forever, Drew, but never mind. <laughs> So, not being one for a cohesive narrative, even within one film, it's perhaps a surprise that Wong Kar Wai followed up In the Mood for Love with, well, something of a sequel. Sort of, but not quite, but may as well be. (laughs) And one that benefits from, though doesn't require having seen the earlier film. But he did just that with 2046, named for the number of the hotel room in which Chow and Su Li Jen collaborated on their martial arts story in In the Mood for Love. Chow has returned to Hong Kong from Singapore and we soon see that he is dealing with the failure of his ultimately chased, well possibly not but I wasn't, I hadn't decided myself in the end of that film but anyway let's go with, um, his ultimately chased relationship with Su Li Jin and the loss of her, his great love from his life by being a womanizer and well, a bit of a prat where women are concerned though whether because of the likability of Tony Leung knowledge of the character from In the Mood for Love or just because he's considerably better than many of the other men in Wong's films up until now, he still comes across as likeable and sympathetic. So having occasion to visit Hong Kong's Oriental Hotel after running into Days of Being Wild's Lulu slash Mimi, he is struck by her room number, 2046, and asks the manager a few days later for that room. Currently unavailable, he's given the adjoining room 2047, and Tiwi begins two very different relationships with two women who will take up residence next door. First is the elder daughter of the hotel owner, played by Fei Wong, who is in love with a Japanese, a relationship that won't be countenanced by her father, so Chow offers to play the go-between for their correspondence. They then begin a writing partnership, one of the products of which is a serial entitled 2046. After her, it's Zhi Zhang's Bai Ling, a club hostess who, it is fairly heavily implied but never stated, is also a call girl. Zhou begins a relationship with her, but for unclear reasons, though perhaps as some sort of self-defence or armour, he treats her very badly. Naturally, because healthy relationships don't yet exist in Wong Kar Wai's world, his being an asshat to her causes her to fall deeply in love with him, up until the point that she finally gets fed up and leaves. Chow attempts to reconcile his feelings, desires and pain through his story, 2046, set in that year and telling the tale of a young Japanese man who is the only passenger aboard a train full of beautiful, servile fembots. Their detachment and emptiness finally brings Chow to an epiphany about himself and his ability to love. All of this occurs, as I'm sure you by now expect, in a non-linear fashion and a fairly incoherent one too. Wong's works are about mood and feeling far more than anything else. Well, mood, feeling, and cigarettes, smoking, and the combustion of tobacco products. (laughs) But if you allow yourself to get lost in it, 2046 is a deeply affecting and rewarding film. Though the regret, heartache, loss, pain, and poignancy have a good chance of stomping on your mood. As you might also expect, it's beautiful, with Wong's regular DP Christopher Doyle joined by Infernal Affairs photographer Lao Yufei and Quan Pung Lung, together creating a warm and rich world that at the same time feels distant and empty, which ought not to be possible. Some of the beautiful compositions even manage not to involve smoking, showing that Wong's prepared <laughs> to grow as a filmmaker. <laughs> yes, I didn't actually... Right at length about this one, Craig. Um, <laughs> because I, I was and you're very much in danger of saying, it's really pretty, but it made me feel sad. Mm. Sad pretty. Mm. <laughs> uh, trying to stretch that to three paragraphs. There's nothing wrong with that. And this is 
the only Wongar Y film I've seen up to this point, despite my memory, which is normally reliable telling me otherwise. And I still think it's fantastic. It's not as... It didn't blow me away in the, way, in the mood for Love did. But I still think it's just mm. a really affecting film. Mm. Um, and just looks great. I wonder if it perhaps suffered from watching in such close proximity to In the Mood for Love, though, because a lot of it, you could argue, is a bit like more of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching it so close to the previous film maybe does a bit of a disservice. Yeah, I mean, I do remember, likewise, first thing, first uh, Wong film I'd seen was 2046, and it did blow me away at the time for much of the same reasons that In the Mood for Love blew me away at the time when I was watching it the first time around this, uh, and for this podcast. And I think you're probably on something there, Drew, it wasn't quite as enamoured with 2046 this time round, but I mean it's, uh, well, cigarette papers between them, if we're honest um, <laughs> really really was again drawn into 2046 as well um, the, the sort of conceit of the future story, the science fiction elements to it kind of really do a, a great way of really emphasising that kind of Wong Kar Wai's more dreamlike um, construction of his plots and how, how that kind of uh, draws together. So uh, that kind of helps it in that regard, it being a bit more obtuse uh, than, than is even normal for him. And I think all the, all the same strengths apply as you've went through there. It looks beautiful, the characters are great, all the performances are fantastic, and uh, again, the, the characters are, uh, you know, they're, they're deep enough that it can be drawn into, they're not simplistic. Um, you know, Tony Leung's obviously acting like an absolute asshole for most of it, but at the same time, he's, for the most part, being entirely honest and mm. Everything he's upfront about everything, so yeah, you know it, it's a it's a bit more morally complex, I think, than maybe some of his earlier works as well. And yeah, it, it just all works together; it all pulls together as well to be a another fantastically enjoyable film. And is certainly um, in the contention within the mood for love for being his best best work. So yeah, mm. great was the great stuff, great stuff. I don't have a great deal to add. I'm I'm one of those people who has I don't know I don't know why, but. Right from the point at which I started forming relationships, I have always been one of those people who finds romance in misery for some reason, and it's a fairly, it's a fairly, <laughs> it's fairly easy, easy to understand how that's a double-edged sword. But essentially, misery loves company, and I am that com- company, right? I'm only, you know, I'm at my happiest when I'm at my saddest, and, I, and that's a dichotomy that's taken me a long time to come to terms with, but. But there you go, um, and that's why I fell in love with Twenty Forty Six immediately when I watched it all all the way back then, and it's why I spent an absolute fortune importing a limited edition DVD copy <laughs> back in. Did you get the limited edition Korean one with the film still in it? Yes, that's that's the one I have as well. <laughs> yes, that's the one. Um, and the whole time that I was waiting on that arriving, I was like, I kept saying to myself, "Please let the film see the film cell be of Fei Wong." Please let the film cell be of Fei Wong. And it arrived and I opened it up. The film cell was not just of Fei Wong, but it was of Fei Wong in exactly the scene I wanted it to be in. <laughs> because Fei Wong's hair in this movie is one of my favourite things in any movie ever. It is up there with Kurt Russell's hair in Tango and Cash. <laughs> That's high praise. Um, <laughs> That's high hair. I don't know. Don't, don't know how else to convey it to you peeps. Um, no, everything about this film, uh, the sort of, uh, the the lingering, uh, it's not misery, um, the words escape me at the minute, can't articulate myself very well on this one, now, despite having had... Ennui in this film. Yes, yeah, the, the sort of lingering ennui and the, the, um, the, the, the sort of um, 
God, it's not a death of romance. It's the sort of acceptance at the onset that the romance is doomed or, you know, just that, again, that whole thing of just being happy, being miserable, it just permeates. Fatalism. Fatalism. There you go. Knew there was a word for it. (laughs) The fatalism of it is what appealed to me um, initially. And um, and visually, it is, it is absolutely overwhelming. You actually hit the nail on the head for me, Drew, before when you said about somehow it manages to be warm but also distant. That's the that's absolutely the thing that appeals most to me about it. And yeah, this was my first Wong Kar Wai film, and it's been maybe not top ten. I know that it's pointless putting numbers on lists, but maybe like a top twenty film for me ever since it came out. But a funny thing happened in the context of then having watched In the Mood for Love. I've gone back and I've reassessed it, and I think you both have touched on this already, but where I previously allowed myself to indulge in a sort of whimsical romanticism of it all, um, as well as the mood and the atmosphere, now that I've seen In the Mood for Love, um, that film's kind of... It does the same thing, but it's more efficient at it, if that makes sense. It's... And it's kind of made me recalibrate my appreciation of this. So my it's not that I like 2046 any less, but my viewpoint on it perhaps has changed. And I feel like this is... I was trying to think of how to articulate it earlier. And 2046 feels to me like if you took in the mood for love and you turned it all the way up to 11, basically, um, and it started clipping a bit, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I don't like it any less now, but I just think my expectation, my understanding of the, of um, uh, how that mood and atmosphere can be facilitated has maybe been recalibrated somewhat. And yeah, cigarette paper between them. I've got a funny feeling that in the long game, if I revisit these movies again in a couple of years, that I will probably suggest that in the mood for love will come out on top. Um, I would imagine the same for myself, but again, it's like... It's kind of like picking between your two children, you know. This tremendously good film is slightly better than that tremendously good film. Yeah. I'm offended. At a certain, yeah, exactly. At a certain point, guess what I'm going to do? Sit back and enjoy two tremendously good films. Um, I think it's interesting that Christopher Doyle wasn't on board for this one. Um, because again, like the thing that captivated yes, me... Oh, was he a cinematographer? Yeah. Oh, cinematographers. Christopher Doyle, um, Lai Yu Fei, who shot Infernal Affairs, and a guy called Quan Ping Lung, who I don't know much about. And oh, right. Okay. Because I hadn't bothered rereading the technicals on it since we came back to this. And when you said earlier, I don't think you mentioned Christopher Doyle before when you were talking about the cinematography, did you? Yes. Did you? Yes. I'm an idiot. Um, there you go. Uh, yeah, sorry, I just I didn't hear you mention Christopher Doyle, and I'm kind of sitting here thinking, oh, that's interesting, man. I just assumed Christopher Doyle was on board for some. So there you go, he was. Uh, so that explains it then. Uh, yeah, this is just a film you can enjoy on on multiple levels, and I don't think in terms of uh, well, obviously we can rule out plot because um, it's one car why, but in terms of character, it's maybe a step behind. Uh, in the mood for love, but aesthetically, it's pretty much on a par. Um, and honestly, I mean, when it comes to when it comes to these two movies, like I could, I can quite happily listen. I'll turn the sound down, and I'll I'll sit and enjoy both these movies with the sound off. I'll mute them, and I'll enjoy them. It doesn't really matter. You, you can appreciate them purely on an aesthetic level, um, but to do so would be to miss out on the character. And I know this isn't as well regarded as uh, some of his other works. I feel like when this first came out, there was actually a bit of a backlash against it. It was viewed as being substantially inferior to In the Mood for Love. 
um, which obviously I had no benchmark for at the time, but it surprises me more even now uh, because it is still a really great film. Really great film. Let's move on. You were talking about Christopher Doyle, Craig. Uh, in his next film, Christopher Doyle's gone, which was a surprise. Um, mm. and also, it's a very much a change of scene, a change of continent, in fact. And also, it's one of the to films where there is unnecessary slow motion <laughs> interspersed throughout for no good reason. Wait a minute, can you pause there for a second, Drew? I'm just going to pan back a bit. Stand still. Stand still. <laughs> right, on you go. And that's my Blueberry Nights. I'm in the United States. <laughs> Starring William Shatner? My blueberry <laughs> nights. It's gone, it's gone. Yes, this, is, this is Wong's first and so far only English language film, which transports us initially to New York as Nora Jones's Elizabeth has her heart broken by some gadabout, then depositing her cheating ex apart, ex's apartment key at the local cafe run by Jude Law's Jeremy, joining a jar of other manifestations of broken dreams. She can't help but hang around night after night to see if that key will be reclaimed, sharing a slice of blueberry pie with Jeremy, but just as it seems there might be some spark in that relationship brewing, if that's what sparks through, I'm not a scientist, she up sticks and leaves. She heads south to find herself working in a diner by day and bar by night in Memphis, Tennessee, where she will become witness to another tragic relationship between David Strathairn's Arnie and Rachel Weiss's Sue Lynn, although perhaps more accurately, it's the relationship between Arnie and the bottle of scotch that's the issue. Later, she'll head off to Nevada and get wrapped up in the life of risk-taking card-sharp Natalie Portman's Leslie in a segment that was certainly a thing that existed, but I'm not sure what the wider point of was, uh, before returning to New York and Jeremy, who has rather soppily been waiting for her for, like, a year for some reason. Um, now, this got a rather tepid reaction on release and is considered a bit of a flop. And, well, it is. Certainly oh. the company of the films we're talking about today. Um, if I was feeling contrary, I could argue a point that the shallow characters and the meandering through line is not significantly worse than we'd seen in his earlier work, and at least Wong's had the sense to cast Travis Sertain in it, instantly making it a watchable film regardless of the well-trod Americana that is dressing itself in. However, at that point, I'd just be arguing about the relative positions at the, in the bottom half of Wong's league table and as there's no relegation from that division I'd rather spend our time here talking about the more positive experiences so I won't say much more other than to say that while it's no one's worst hour either in front of or behind the camera it's also far from their best particularly Jude Law and that allegedly Mancunian accent mm-hmm. apart from Nora Jones I suppose who didn't really act in anything substantial after this to date so this is both her best and worst hour <laughs> such is life um, look, my Blueberry Nights is by no means awful but it's by no means recommended to anyone other than a completionist of Wong stuff it's okay, I entirely understand why people were completely underwhelmed by it and it's very much the, the weakest link in these particular films that we'll be talking about today and not all that interesting as far as I can tell sorry <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes um, I largely feel the same, Scott. I enjoyed it enough um, but it's compared to his other films it's, it's a regression in a lot of ways it feels <laughs> slight yeah it feels very, very slight. And I know that's a weird thing to say, given what we've said about everything else Wong Kar Wai has done. Like, substance isn't a big thing mm-hmm. um, in a lot of the some more traditional aspects of storytelling anyway. But this just feels kind of... It's Wong Kar Wai light. Yeah. And I don't know maybe if that is because it's slightly more conventionally structured. 
And I don't know if it's that or maybe just that, that the story isn't particularly captivating. Mm. I mean, I did appreciate that at least one of these films, there was a happy ending. Yes. You know, because I couldn't have taken 10 of Misery. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I, I don't know if you feel quite as much, but I know Craig has, does, uh, has done in the past now. I've done, like, really, really not liking Jude Law. <laughs> I I swing hot and cold. I mean, I think we've we've probably all got more or less the same ones. Like, because I think I first saw Jude Law back when he was in um, Gattaca in what was that ninety five? Ninety eight, I think. Ninety seven or ninety eight. And he's really good in that. Yeah. And then he'll show up in something else that's absolutely dreadful. And it's almost like it alternates. Like he, he goes from like being really good in some films to absolutely <laughs> awful in others. And I think it's more his, yeah. his film selection. So, he, like when he's given decent material, he can be really good. Tradition. Yeah. Um, he's really good in um, Contagion. He's really good in um, well, a whole number of films. <coughs> what, Sherlock what Holmes, was that? great in. Yeah, he is. What was that one he did with, uh, he was in with Forrest Whitaker again about the bounty hunters? That's a Repo Men. Repo Men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really yeah. Good repo men. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he kind of is an actor that kind of bounces about between really good and really great, and I never know quite what I'm going to get from him. And this one is right bang in the middle. To be honest, he's not really given enough to do to make much of an impact on anything. In to be honest, it's not the rhythm section, so I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because every so often you would get something like a you got Road to Perdition was a really interesting character, and then mm. it's probably around about the same time Alfie was made. Did we make an mm. Alfie? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk about uh, giving with one hand and taking away with the yeah. other. Yeah. Uh, but I can't remember where I was going now. We seem to have gone down a Jude Law rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I said, uh, he's, I mean, he's okay in this, I guess. I mean, he's, he's not getting a lot to do. That's the big yeah. problem. It's just that, yeah, it's slight. Um, I mean, you can see some of the trappings of a one car Y film, but I, I do wonder because he's resisted like more conventional narrative structure most of his career, mm-hmm. and I wonder maybe where, with where the funding for this film came from or something, whether he just wasn't able to do that in the United States, or whether it was perhaps just being less comfortable in a different language that that can make a big difference. I feel yeah. But yeah, there's still bits in there I like, and I actually really, really like Nora Jones. Um, she was issue- entirely inoffensive. Um, it's a shame she didn't actually get a chance to get something a bit meatier um, yeah, as it goes on. She, so exactly, yeah. in terms of actresses going transition to uh, film, she's not perhaps Lady Gaga, but she's also not Madonna. So she's somewhere in the no, middle. Yeah. Um, again, and she's not given an awful lot to do there. No. But like, they've had an appealing presence. And the only issue I really had with her was like, quite late in this film and I've always liked Nora Jones' music but watching Nora Jones on screen playing a character while her music plays over the top like, that <laughs> felt really uncomfortable yeah. and I'm sure it's not her choice but it's that's weird it felt, it felt really um, self-indulgent yeah. um, it felt a bit vanity project yeah, even though it's not her I, project sure it's not absolutely not but it felt like so that was a, that juxtaposition was a bit odd it's certainly the most dispensable of the the five we're talking about tonight. So probably for completionist, but I mean, there are only 10 films or 10 feature films in one car yeah. work. So being a completionist isn't that much of a stretch. My big problem with the film is seems to be the same one you have though, Scott, is why the Natalie Portman section? Yeah. Didn't really go anywhere in any, any sort of hint at emotionality. And it comes right at the end and it's going over in like what, four sentences at the very end of that film when you was supposed to see your father in hospital. And that's rushed through very quickly and instead most of it is about her playing cards. Yeah. Mm, okay. <laughs> I'm not sh- that didn't seem to add anything. It didn't really do anything for... 
it seemed like that whole section, which for like a was it one hour thirty seven minutes or something, yeah, for a film of that length, it seemed to take up quite a chunk, and it seemed to only exist as far as I can tell for Nora Jones to to say to Jude Law in our letter, um, I've spent the last several days being taught how to not trust people, and I'm glad to say I failed. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's great. I like that about the optimism of her character, not wanting to be cynical and stuff, but did it require that entire section? <laughs> yes. Not not efficient, which is a... <laughs> uh, so, no, again, I can't comment because I had a choice in terms of my time bank as to whether I invested in uh, this or rewatching 2046. And against my better instincts, because I'm intrigued by the notion of Nora Jones and Jude Law being in a film together, uh, I, I erred on the side of rewatching 2046 to see how it fared after In the Mood for Love. So I can't comment. It's not dreadful, but God, it, it certainly was the right choice to watch Time for Six again over this. Well, I mean, I, you've, I you've not regretted it, Craig, but it's just um, yeah, if you only had time for one. You've, you've made a smart choice there. Yeah, by luck. I was going to say you're not you're not necessarily putting me off wanting to at least pick it up at some point in future, just out of interest. Because it's an hour and a half, I'm sure you could find your time if you like the filmmaker. Yeah, exactly. And hey, listen, you know, as we reach, as we get towards the end of this thing, that's one of the things I appreciate most about Wong Kar Wai is that actually he seems to be able to get done in an hour and 30, an hour and 40, what most other filmmakers would want to uh, languish over, you know, over the course of two hours. So, yeah, yeah um, I'm glad you mentioned that because that thought was very much in my head as well. But there's one, the next film I come to is one long one. Yes. Um, and it's not that long. But. Um, and I know we talk about it a lot, me in particular, but it's because it just bothers me sort of about how unnecessary it is. You can have a film, it's three hours long, can fly by, lots of Scorsese stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, but it's got a, like a, a wealth of stuff in there. Whereas I'm watching In the Mood for Love, which is what, an hour 35, an hour 38, something like that. Mm-hmm. One of the most affecting films I've ever seen, and I'm thinking... Why are comedies two hours, ten minutes nowadays when that film is doing that in 90 minutes? Exactly. Adam Mackay, have you watched <laughs> Have you watched a Wong Kar Wai film? <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, he doesn't allow himself the indulgence of time so much as he does the... It's as, it's as if he's got a little set of skills and on one side he's got time and on the other side he's got, you know, sort of aesthetic indulgence and he, he puts all of his... He puts, and listen, I think it's amazing. I think that's one of the things I've appreciated most over these these movies I've watched, but... There you go. Right, so we're going to finish up then with what, if you've listened to the rest of our descriptions of these films, might strike you as a very odd choice for Wong Kar Wai, which is a biopic of the legendary Hong Kong Kung Fu master Ip Man. Yes, the Grand Master. Uh, his his last, well, his most recent film, remarkably, 2013, he's, he's uh, I think, is he in the middle of his production underway on his next film? Lost I think Blossoms, Blossoms is supposed so. to be this year, yeah. Yeah, which is meant to sort of follow on from 2046 and In the Mood for Love, but yeah. other, it's more a thematic one. Yeah. I don't know, but kind of remarkable to think yeah, that it's, it's been seven years since we've had uh, one of these movies, but The Grand Master was it. Who can take a bad guy? Kick him in the face <laughs> with just his little finger. Chuck him round the place. The eat man can. <laughs> yes, the eat man can. Um, 
so bereft have I been of foreign cinema and associated culture these past few years that I was under the impression Ip Man was basically a kung fu movie franchise fronted by Donnie Yen. I had no <laughs> idea that Ip Man was an actual dude and something of a cultural icon within the martial arts community. And that's cer- a tombstone, <laughs> actually, isn't it? <laughs> an actual, actual dude. dude. <laughs> um, certainly not that he was, in fact, the master of one Bruce Lee which I think quite erroneously this movie is quite heavily marketed as being about the master of Bruce Lee, when that's really got nothing to do with it. Long in the gestation, about a decade or so, Carwise 2013 movie The Grandmaster seeks to address the legend himself, seemingly lamenting as it goes the passing of martial arts from a dynastic way of life to a recreational pursuit with the second Sino-Japanese war somewhere in the middle. The film begins with a rain-drenched fight where Ip Man, Tony Leung again, kicks the collective ass of about a dozen men, one of whom is, for reasons perhaps known only to himself, wearing iron shoes. I gather this scene takes place chronologically rather than later in Ip Man's life and that the remainder of the film is essentially comprised of flashbacks, but I'm not clear on that because by some combination of exotic cultural mores, confused subtitling and a banging headache, I struggle to make much sense of the first half hour of The Grandmaster. Having since checked via a quick dip into Wikipedia, I'm now much clearer on it and things certainly scanned markedly more logically when I watched the remainder of the following day. So I'm guessing it was mostly the headache. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anywho, in the early 1930s, Ip Man is selected to represent martial arts interests in southern China by Grandmaster Gong Yushan, who surprises everyone when he announces his retirement. Gong's daughter, Er, Zhang Ziyi, objects somewhat to the formation of a southern branch of the family's interest, but perhaps grudgingly forms some respect for Ip Man when he defeats her father in a philosophical battle. In the north, it is decreed that tradition passes to Gong student Ma San, Jing Zhang, who looks like he might be a wrong'un, but we'll come back to him. <laughs> Having formed a friendship with Gong Er, Ip Man plans to travel to the north with his family, but his plans are somewhat scuppered by the Japanese invasion of 1937. In the resulting chaos of war, Ip Man tragically loses two of his daughters and relocates to Hong Kong in order to try and provide for his family by teaching Wing Chun in one of the city's many martial arts schools. In the meantime, we have seen Ma San side with the Imperial Japanese forces and turn traitor on Gong Yushan, killing the master, thereby understandably invoking the ire of Gong Er. Now, if that sounds like a lot more plot than is typical for a Wong joint, (laughs) you'd be correct. If it sounds like a lot more action, you'd also be correct. Uh, Now that I think about it, I wonder if that first half hour didn't see me blindsided by simply being in the wrong mindset, (laughs) because by all obvious measures, this is really far removed from the director's typical fare. Uh, That's not to say that I didn't enjoy The Grandmaster, because there's a good deal to like about it. This is, after all, a movie where a man has to fight a cake. (laughs) However, there are also things I don't like about it, such as... Wait a minute, a man has to fight a cake? (laughs) Were the Grandmaster to focus purely on the drama aspect, I feel it might have fared a little bit better, as the dramatic dealings and brothel-bound debates are easily the best thing about it. The intrigue and internal politics of mid-century martial arts houses against the backdrop of foreign invasion would easily be enough to sustain a ten-part Netflix series, never mind a two-hour movie. So while it may sound counterintuitive, it almost seems a shame to bring things to a halt for martial arts sequences. 
martial arts sequences that are absolutely fine and seem technically adept as far as I can tell, but that I couldn't really get all that excited about because I only need to see so many super slow motion shots of feet sliding to a halt in rain and snow in my entire life. And I'm pretty sure that those constitute at least 15 minutes of this movie's <laughs> runtime. Suffice to say, if those were the only things missing from the Harvey Scissorhands US cut of this movie, I might actually recommend it. <laughs> Having said that, I'm not going to pretend I didn't let out a yes when Gong Air gives a certain asshole 40 rapid against a passing train. (laughs) (laughs) On which note, let me once again talk of dignified female leads. While I have no doubt Zhang Zai would kick most people's ass, male or female, it's wonderfully satisfying to find her ultimate move is very publicly correcting a battered Massan's assertion that he passes the family legacy to her. But yes, bit of an odd one this. There's a lot here to like, but it's kind of got a foot in two camps and it can't quite reconcile those in cinematic terms. The Grandmaster is not my highest recommendation of this episode, but I'm not going to tell you not to watch it either because I had a great deal of fun watching it. Yeah, I really like this. I, I, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying um, and it's certainly not very Wong Kar Wai. Mm. Um, it is... It is the, almost deliberately contrary of him to earlier in his career direct a wushu film that doesn't have any wushu in it and then put it into a biopic instead. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's quite Wonkar White. It's, it's the meta Wonkar White, Scott. It is. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, it is a bit uh, confusing in the way that it's structured, but to be honest, I was quite enjoyed all my time with it and uh, it did sucker me into all of its little intrigues. Interesting in a way that they didn't quite go into the... There's a sort of level above it where it's talking, thinking more about the kind of irrelevancy of martial arts in the face of the Japanese war machine, yeah. um, which it, it kind of hints at round the side, but it doesn't quite get into, but is perhaps <laughs> perhaps it's, it's getting at that thematically when that boy's face gets mashed by a train. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Subtle, but it's there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it is, I think, a pretty competently done martial arts film. I quite enjoyed all that. Um, unlike you, I'm not dead inside, so I'll happily watch slow motion shots of people <laughs> in the rain forever. And certainly there's some shots in it that are absolutely uh, stunningly beautiful, as you'd perhaps Ooh. come to expect uh, from Karwai. Uh, yes, it's, it, perhaps it doesn't hang together as well as you might want. It's certainly not up in the same league in, as something that's committing a bit more heavily to uh, one camp or something like, mm. well, we always go back to House of Flying Daggers and Hero and all that kind of stuff, um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but they're, we go back to them for a reason, they're really good. And this kind of leans to a degree in that way, but it's also trying to also be an accurate biography mm. of it man at the same time as clearly not being because he can't actually fly from what I understand no. um, so yeah it, I don't you mean it's certainly the, the, it's certainly bouncing between the two camps and it doesn't quite um, that's, that's stall in either one of them but it's still that's, enjoyable that's what uh, that's what detracted from it for me because I thought there's this really sort of um there's this really engaging sort of dramatic core to the film in, t- yeah. in terms of, you know, th- and it's really beautifully summed up towards the end where um, Gong Air and Eat Man are walking down the street and she makes some comment along, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, I'll oh, look at this, it's all boiled down to, like, basically, a, you know, a row of kung fu uh, yeah. schools on one street, um, which is quite, uh, you know, quite different to how the movie opens. Um, and there's there's a hu- it feels like there's a huge story there that hasn't yeah. really been told all that effectively necessarily Mm. and the martial arts sequences detracted a bit for me because they're very wushu in nature and that very sort of human grounded dramatic aspect was so far removed from 
this sort of overblown theatrics of the kung fu where it's that thing of like, okay, I'm going to flick my wrist and this guy's going to barrel 50 feet through the air through a window sort of thing. It just didn't quite... The two sides of the scale... It's not to say that it can't be done, but the two sides of the scale didn't balance out for me all that well. Yeah, it makes Um, sense. So it kind of it kind of took the edge off for me, and I kind of felt myself by the end of the movie thinking, "I really wish the kung fu bits hadn't been in it because there's more than enough to sustain uh, this this film. There's enough of interest there." I was also a little bit put off by the I'm not sure what narrative purpose the sort of random leaps in uh, time took. Uh, there are certain parts of the film where you'll suddenly get a very disjointed leap back or forward in time and it's not consistent enough to feel like it was there for any sort of greater narrative purpose. It seems to have been done quite selectively and I'm not entirely sure what the purpose was but again I'm not convinced I had the best set of subtitles so I could be missing something there. See, I think some of that's to do with that, like what keeps coming up in his films is like the importance of particular dates mm-hmm. uh, that's certainly how mm. ah the first time as tears goes by starts mm-hmm. to, oh no wait it's that days of being wild is that no, days of, was that not largely chronological I can't remember now no I'm talking about the, like, the importance of time oh okay uh, when he says like remember this one minute past three or something yeah when he's trying he's telling her that she'll he's basically trying to force himself into the yeah. the lead character's memory yeah yeah, you'll dream about um, me tonight. Remember this, because I'm going to give you this one minute. Yeah, that's days have been a while. I think. Yeah. Anyway, but so there's a recurrent thing of that sort of thing of like importance of particular dates. It's in the mood for love. It's all about Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, it's about Chinese New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And then when um, Ip Man goes to see um, Gong Air on Chinese New Year's Eve, and they're toasting to her father and she said do you know where I was in Chinese New Year's Eve yeah 10 years ago yep Uh, so I think it's maybe more to do with what the actual significance is I don't know I I didn't get it but Mm. I think it's maybe more to do with that Um, and like sort of recurrence of important dates and things Mm. because it seems to be a theme in his work Uh, that's understandable because we touched on it last episode didn't we about how culturally I suppose um, in China certain things hold great significance and I know there are dates like the Chinese New Year and whatnot that are perhaps more important there than we would necessarily um, perceive them to be as calendar dates here so there's maybe some sort of larger cultural significance there for a Chinese audience that is maybe lost on us perhaps yeah was the Chinese New Year such a big holiday I mean like the factory shut down for weeks and stuff um, people move all over the country at that oh. time so that may be the fact that she was killing someone or attempting to kill someone on New Year's Eve like if it's a cultural taboo I, or something I like just realised what I did there I was talking about Chinese New Year and I had in my head our New Year when we talk about New Year do you know where I was New Year 10 years ago of course she's talking about Chinese New Year because in China Chinese New Year is called New Year <laughs> sorry uh-huh. I've just realised what a mug I made of myself there <laughs> as if picking Chinese New Year was a different example oh dear sorry <laughs> <laughs> Think before you open your mouth, Craig. I suspect I'm a bit closer to Scott um, than you, but mm. not so much between it. Really enjoyed it. I do agree, Craig, that the so the two elements don't mesh that well together, mm. like the the biopic part and the the actual fighting parts. That said, some of the fighting parts, including that very first one in mm. the ludicrously wet street, yeah, <laughs> did look amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it's, what I'm aware of is that perhaps there are. Not so much cultural clues, but simply historical knowledge that a Hong Kong or Chinese audience would know that I'm not going to get that mm-hmm. make 
people or events more significant mm-hmm. um, and they were lost on me but like Razor Man what was yeah. that subplot about? Oh thank you because that's the only other note I've got about this sorry down at the end of the thing I wanted to ask you guys what was what was the Razor about? Why did we go back to the Razor's Barbershop? Because I wondered if I had uh, as is often the case listen I get interrupted every sort of 10 minutes during a film by the kids shouting in another room and having to go and separate them and I didn't think I'd missed anything but I came back I'd, I lost about 30 seconds tops and came back and Gong Air and the Razor were on the train together and he was they were they had the ra- the straight razor out underneath the blanket and I missed that entire setup and then after that I thought oh I've just missed a really crucial 30 seconds as to who this guy is because we no, come back to him twice again in the movie where he's kicking the imperial forces ass yeah well he's not it's, it's triads or something later is it first, oh okay the first time you see him he's on the train Japanese army are clearly looking for someone to just attack with mm-hmm. soldiers. Mm-hmm. It's him and... Right, okay, that's the bit I missed Zang- then. Where's- Zang Si puts her coat over him and uh, cuddles into him to make it look like they're a couple that have been in a train for ages yeah. so, she can, so he can hide yeah. and not be discovered with the bloody razor in his hand. Mm-hmm. And then it says, this, the couch that comes up says that um, he was she'd just met um, the razor, the nationalist um, agitator or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if I remember my Chinese history, I think that means he was kind of like the side fighting against Mao, mm-hmm. so the um, Chiang Kai-shek side. Yeah, because that whole scene ends with just that title card, right, saying, on this date, Gong Er yeah. met the Razor. And then there's two times later, and at first I thought they were maybe Maoist forces or something, um, but they're in Hong Kong at that point, and then there's something about when the same guy comes back later and he gets his ass handed to him again. Yeah, because that second um, scene I thought was still at the point in which Imperial forces would have been occupying. No, but I, I don't think, think it is, is it? I think they're triads. Right, okay. Um, it's the only thing that really made sense there, but regardless, none of it has any business being in that film that I can see, um, unless like the, the Razor was like a well-known person and it's like, right. well, he was around this sort of time, we'll put him in. Thank goodness, audience. because I really thought I'd missed something critical that was spoiling my enjoyment of the film. But no, for me, there's like there's no reason for that car to be there. It didn't add anything yeah. and there's only one bare interaction with anybody else that's in it. The only solace I took from it, and I, I convinced myself it might not be the case, was the fact that you know days days have been wild established he's quite happy just to randomly throw in a new character in the last <laughs> scene of his film sort of thing so I thought okay I'm not going to panic too much about this Razor character but then when he was in it three times I did worry that I'd missed something yeah when you see him the third time the caption comes up saying that he also founded off um Kung Fu Scott yes. yeah the last time we see him was in the so, in the black and white fade of the photograph being taken of him and his students isn't it and one of them is the guy the triad guy who will assume now who had asked him to, asked him to teach him but yeah I think why why he was in there I have no idea no I think the problem I had in the films again like I knew Eve Man wasn't done again uh, <laughs> I didn't know he was real in it but I didn't really know, like, quite the cultural cachet has. But mm. I've heard it, but I've never really understood why. This film didn't help with that. Because it got, it got to the end, and you see, like, again, the bit you mentioned when Gong Air and Ip Man are walking. Or is this just Gong Air? No, it's, both of them are walking in the street, and Gong Air looks up and goes, like, uh, look at the street of schools. Mm. Is that what Hong Kong has become? And when Ip Man originally arrived in Hong Kong, in the first place he went to get a job as a teacher. Yeah. The guy says to him, Hong Kong's basically nothing but a Kung Fu skills now. It's like become fashionable. Yeah. And it's kind of like, 
guess like gyms nowadays or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so I see that that like the idea of this it it started the film pre World War Two, um, pre Sino Japanese War. It's this great cultural legacy. It's really meaningful. End of the film, all the glory's gone. It's basically uh, it's a recreational uh, pursuit. Yeah, yeah. It, it's your local gym. So I can see that kind of the loss of the grandeur, the loss of the mystique and the culture and the history and stuff like that. I think the film sells quite well. Mm-hmm. But it's like, so Eve members had a punk, uh, Kung Fu Shido, did they? Okay. Why was he significant? I don't think the film really sells why he was important. Yeah, that's a really good point. That uh, It seems quite obvious now, but that I think I'd kind of overlooked by the end of the film. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, you, you get on the idea at the start that it's kind of like he's not quite as low down as Rocky, but if it's like boxing, he's hmm. um, not the number one contender to take on the guy at yeah. the start. And they're like, oh, where's this Johnny completely come from? He doesn't deserve it or something. Beats the guy with wits, not skill. And so you get, okay, that's a big deal. This guy's the martial arts master, okay. But then I don't think the film, any of the rest of the film sells why Ip Man became such a big deal. Why he was special, especially when mm. there's so many other um, Kung Fu schools in Hong Kong. I wonder that you're not right that, um, yeah, that a Chinese audience would, would come with that knowledge sort of pre-installed, but mm. it still doesn't, it's still, you would think that in terms of, Filmmaking that a filmmaker would still feel compelled to, you know, especially Wong Kar Wai, his films have been recognised internationally, which is not to say he has to pander to an international audience, but, you know, I think we could probably think of examples of Western films where, you know, that undoubtedly will play globally and that there's stuff in there that we would take for granted, but it's still kind of spelled out for the, for the benefit of, of non-native audiences and stuff. But I also wonder whether... You know, when I talk about the the sort of hyper-real and maybe sort of exaggerated nature of the, the Kung Fu sequences, I wonder if, again, you've not hit something on the head there whereby I don't know that in, you know, in Chinese mythology and in Chinese storytelling there's not uh, a tendency to sort of embellish and make characters and stories more fantastical and if you've Mm -hmm. grown up with that culturally as the norm then you know a Chinese audience might not necessarily find that so disjointed if their their traditions of storytelling sort of accommodate that already but I don't know I'm just taking a stab at that I wonder if that's why that didn't play so well Hmm. it's possible yeah I certainly do find it odd though they didn't kind of make more of a deal of why a yeah. biopic about a man, why they should be making a biopic about this man. Yeah, because he's not necessarily the most interesting character in that film, really. Is he? I would argue that probably Gong Air is, is more interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think she's got more agency as mm-hmm. well, because I don't think he's doing an awful lot. Well, he certainly doesn't seem like a man necessarily as in charge of his own destiny as she is, uh, you know, and her destiny was not ultimately to lead a happy and fulfilled life, but it was still very much on her own terms, right? Whereas he... Eat Man feels more like a victim of circumstance throughout the film. Mm. To a degree, yeah. I mean, he, he has ability, clearly. Yeah. But, he makes, um, he makes of, the best of the hand he's dealt, maybe, but he's still... Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of choice yeah. in a lot of the stuff that happens. Yeah. Um, hmm. One last thing I do want to say about this, though, as much as broadly in agreement that perhaps entertaining as the martial arts sections may be, that they seem a little out of place at best, I think. Mm-hmm. This film does have one of my favourite training montages ever, though, which largely consists of Tony Leung wandering around with a 
an expression on his face somewhere between polite interest and wry amusement <laughs> while he casually beats everybody that comes at him. I think that's his expression for most of the film. <laughs> it is, yeah. But in that scene, in particular, when he's getting ready to fight the Grandmaster and mm. he's... Um, uh, there's uh, the woman that comes in at first and she was like, hey, oh, is that don't, when, don't damage the ancestral tablets, it's just practice. Yeah, is that when he, at the start when he's first uh, propositioned as the as the representative of the South yeah, and he and faces like the three challengers? He basically yeah. goes around all the places, he's trying to learn everything he can about Southern martial arts. Yes. That expression on his face is magnificent. It's, yeah. just, like, it's just like, Riley amused it. And I don't think if it's because these people are, aren't really good, but he still looks like polite and interested at the same time. And it's, yeah, as he's kicking really, their teeth in. <laughs> really, really amused by that training montage. <laughs> and it's just like his expression anytime somebody tries to start some <laughs> with him, basically. It's like, all right, that's interesting. Come at me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, yeah, no, not that. Uh, yeah, it's actually a really enjoyable film. I think I'm probably quite likely to come back to this at some point, actually. It just won't be super high up the list. But yeah, I wouldn't want people to get the impression I didn't like it because it's still a really good film. I think, honestly, though, I would, if I were to watch this again, which I may well, I would do research first. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking that. I mean, is this just because. In China, is it man so culturally significant that, you know, when we do a biopic of Churchill, we don't actually go into much detail about what Churchill did because yeah, we all know what yeah. Churchill did, that kind of thing. Well, mm-hmm. actually, no, we don't. We do. <laughs> oh. We'll talk for another day. Churchill's not very nice. But, um, you know what I mean? If, yeah, if, it, if it turns out that he's he, he's got that much of a, uh, a cultural cachet, then it, maybe it just felt that it didn't need to, and we're just not, um, not party to that. But mm. yeah, who knows? It's, it's, it'd be interesting to me. What um, is this film's Churchill going into the subway shaking the black man's hand? Yes. <laughs> yes. Are we just actually coming coming to it from the wrong point of calibration as well? Because we know that Wong Kar Wai is not like super heavy on plot or necessarily uh, character development. So it's kind of like Eat Man's a character from one of his other films that just happens to be drifting through the <laughs> middle of this martial arts yeah. movie. And maybe um, maybe we're expecting the wrong thing to uh, uh, you know in saying that he's he's not particularly well developed or we're not entirely clear on his purpose. Because I suppose you could say that a lot about of his other characters as well. Yeah. Um, I would say no because well one Gong Air is really well developed. Mm. Um Maybe not as a historical figure. I mean, again, I don't know how real that is, but as a character, she is. And the fact that where there isn't character in art in other films, there is there is mood. There isn't as much of that in this film, I would say. It's more about character narrative, historical events, rather than trying necessarily to just to convey a feeling. Mm. Certainly compared to his other films, maybe more so compared to another filmmaker, but compared to his other work. Yeah. Not at all. Hey, listen, we've had a good discussion out of it, so I'd suggest that there's some some merit to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. if anybody else uh, listening has seen it um, and has well, either can reinforce our take or has something to tell us that we don't know or have missed, mm-hmm. that'd be great to hear. Or even indeed how the US cut fares against this, because I think, did all three of us watch the regular domestic Hong Kong cut? Yes. Uh, yes. yes. I, I refuse to watch the... US cut. The, the rapist's it, cut. It, it, it sounded dumbed down, which I always hate. Mm-hmm. It, some cuts are like actually judicious and they're better for it. That's great, but the, the way this was put, the fact that it's like, it's a more linear version that includes explanatory text for Americans less familiar with the story. Mm-hmm. And now you say that, I'm like, 
maybe some of that would be useful but you know i could <laughs> yeah. i could read a wikipedia entry before i watched the film and not have it kind of mess with the film yeah. yes but it'd be interesting to know how much difference i kind of wonder whether the razor makes into that cut because you could quite easily take that character out yeah yeah there's a case to be made for checking that cut, but I just I think we're too close. We're, we're too close to the convicted sex offender who, uh, you know, and the events surrounding that right now for me to have the stomach for it. Frankly, knowing that that was commissioned by him, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, interesting. Cool film though. Well, that'll wrap us up yep. for the day. Unless anyone's any arguments to the contrary. No. In no, which I case, think we've had a nice discussion there. Yes. Yes, sir. Thank you, gentlemen. Finally, got some decent films out of the man. It was very much a game of very much a game of two halves. <laughs> yes. This one, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, so until next time, take care of yourself and each other. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do through email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com, through Twitter at fudsonfilm, through Facebook at facebook.com slash fudsonfilm, or through smoke signals or whatever else you like. Uh, yes, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that my compadres shall do too. Bye. Hasta luego.